Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling-Biru. Welcome to this special episode of Pop Culture Confidential. I recently had the honor of being invited to lovely Bergen, Norway and the Nordic Media Days Conference to moderate a conversation with the brilliant editor Timothy Good. We dive into Timothy's unique work with Craig Mason's acclaimed TV series The Last of Us, his process, the emotional depth of this video game adaptation, And, of course, one of the most beautiful love stories on screen in recent memory, Episode 3, Long, Long Time, starring Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett as Bill and Frank. Oh, and so much more. This is recorded live, and the few clips that we watch there are edited and shortened here. But without further ado, here is our session. The first speaker you'll hear is Guri Hefti, Festival Director of Nordic Media Days, with her introduction. So, acclaimed by the critics and loved by the fans, HBO's monster hit, The Last of Us, has been one of this winter's most fascinating stories told on a screen. But but making television drama out of one of the most iconic computer games ever, how is that even possible? To dig into this mystery, we have invited a man who has been a creative force in this remarkable project, the series editor, Timothy Good. Timothy has a background in producing and directing, as well as editing. He has edited a wide variety of TV series, including uh, The Umbrella Academy, The Resident, Fringe, The OC, and the original Gossip Girl. We are super excited that he is joining us here today to share his wonderful work. Joining him on stage is Swedish-American journalist and host of the acclaimed podcast Pop Culture Confidential, Christina Yerling. Please give them both a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much to Guri and to Nordiska Media Dagar for having me. Welcome, Tim. I'm so honored to get to talk to oh, you here today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to have Maybe you. Maybe I should say välkommen, because oh. you're a good Illinois boy, but with a Swedish mom. Right? I do. I have a Swedish mother. So, yeah, she's very, very jealous that I'm here right now. <laughs> um, here's the thing, Tim. You are such a unique editor. You bring empathy, human emotion into all the work that you do. Um, And with The Last of Us, you were instrumental in bringing one of the most beautiful love stories to TV that we have seen in a long time, I have to say, right? Um, And this is what I'm hoping that we're going to get into to really understand your work. And in order to do that, I want, before we dive into The Last of Us, I have a couple questions to show who you are, what choices you make, You say that you're not a technical editor. You're a psychological architect of film. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of an odd way I came about this. But I was working about 25 years ago for an editor. And I remember thinking that all editors have to do is know how computers work and how these machines work. 
and I was working with an editor who did Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing, the Coen Brothers films, and he had said, I don't know how to do this on the computer. And I said, well, what do you mean you don't know how to do this? You've been, you've been editing for so long. And he goes, that's not what editing is. Editing is actually taking emotions and, and, and characters and stories and being able to tell an incredible story. The technology behind it is not as important. And at that point, I realized that there's something else here, and it's not about being a technician. It's not about being someone who just puts things together in an arbitrary fashion. And so when I grew up around uh, the city of Chicago in Oak Park, um, Frank Lloyd Wright had done a bunch of uh, his early work there. And so my parents had taken me to these houses, and I started building things with all of these blocks and, and all these different style of pieces, which then uh, led me to doing more models and airplanes and, of course, Lego. Um, we have to have uh, Lego everywhere we go. Um, and also, at the same time, I was really into piano and music. And between those elements, I started to realize that there's a sense of uh, emotion in music and a sense of emotion in architecture that could be blended together. And the thing I loved uh, about all of that was how I'd used movies and the things that I loved in movies, I was starting to see that in movies as well. And so when I became an editor, that's how I went about it. And if you would give us one movie that you feel, that's not yours, we're going to get into your amazing work, but that does this, what would you take? Oh. Or for TV. You know what? It would be Damien Chazelle's first film, Whiplash. Yes. Um, when I first saw that film, I saw it very early on. I knew right away. You know right the film, away. right, about the drummer? Yeah, mm -hmm. the drummer and his uh, horrible mentor. Yeah. So, and I watched that film, and I realized right then and there, I said, well, this film's going to win the editing Oscar. And I actually told the editor this. And it was one of his first films, and he says, no, no, it's not possible. I said, no, 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 it's going to happen. Because what you've done is you've taken a relationship between these sort of conflicting forces and you've injected the emotion of character using the rhythm and the architecture of the shots and you've told it in a beautiful way that everyone can recognize and no one can deny. And so at that point I said, this is the, f the film that really shows what editing can do. And he won. And he won. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into The Last of Us. Let's look for the light, right? Yes. Um, I have some shocking news, even more shocking than that you're Swedish. Um, you never played The Last of Us. That's and you correct. still haven't. I have so not. when your acquaintance, you're basically Fred with, uh, friends with Craig Mason, gave you the script, what drew you? Well, originally what drew me is Craig is an incredible writer, and he's an incredible creator. He's an amazing thinker. And when I saw his film, or the series Chernobyl that he did, I recognized that he's no longer doing funny things, like hangovers and, and whatnot. And he knew that he was doing something different. And what I saw was character, and what I saw was sophistication, and all the things that I look for as an editor was what he was doing. So I literally said to him one night, I said, I, said, I know I'm just the guy who serves you cocktails at our dinner parties, <laughs> but I'm also an editor, and I would love to work with you. And so somehow, three years later, uh, it all happened. And, and we were able to get uh, together, and, and I was able to go to Calgary. And then he basically says, all right, so here's the deal. This is my favorite script I've ever written, so please don't fuck it up. <laughs> nice starting words. So. But you've never felt the need to play it. I, well, I didn't have time to play it, mm -hmm. number one, because I got the job almost at the last uh, minute. Um, it was, uh, I was lucky that I was uh, able to substitute in for an editor who uh, had scheduling issues. So I was literally just dropped into it, and I said, well, I don't have time to play. But I also thought about what I'd learned as a producer many years back. Someone had said to me, don't know too much. 
Because if you know too much, then you're going to have a preconceived notion of how things should be, and it may actually sort of code the way you do things. And you may actually subconsciously do things in the way that you've seen it being done, as opposed to how you can bring yourself to it. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take the risk. And I also knew that because a video game is something that a lot of people aren't going to experience, I have to be there, uh, uh, the ambassador to these people. Right. I have to make sure that, they're, uh, that I'm looking out for them as well. I had uh, all of these other people on the production that knew the game very well, so they would adjust me here and there. But it was a really great idea that ultimately worked out very well to have me knowing nothing going in. Historically, <clears throat> video game adaptations have not been a huge, as huge a success that Hollywood would have wanted, considering the amount of money that is in that industry and that Hollywood wants to get its hands on. Yeah. But The Last of Us and a couple things have, have definitely changed that. But there are some obstacles. As you're saying, there's two audiences, the ones that have played the game when a show or film comes out and the ones that haven't. You have the interactivity aspect um, that the players maybe want to feel that when they see the show. What kind of things were you all worried about at the start of this when you were going to adapt the show? Well, that's a really great question because I wasn't worried about anything because I didn't <laughs> know anything, which everyone else was worried, which was great for me, um, and they all had to be worrying. Meanwhile, I was sort of in, in the world of trying to do what I thought was the best course of action, which has, for my entire career, has always been about creating character dynamics, creating intricate, sophisticated, nuanced, not always um, likable characters, but relatable characters. And that was the thing that I just wanted to focus on specifically. Uh, and, and that's why I, when I went in, I was like, well, I'm just going to tell the best story I can possibly tell. And since you all are so nervous, you can you know, make me feel nervous and do your best. So. I want to take a look at a clip now. It's called Kansas City Crash, yeah. right? Um, and think about when we see this clip. Think about the world, what it looks like, the, the angles and things. And then on the other side, we'll talk about it. Can we get the clip, please? Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. Um, for you guys, you can go afterwards and Google. There's a YouTube clip where they've put the game and this clip together. And from my very untechnical point of view, it's very similar. They have the same camera angles. You have Joel saying basically the same thing at the same time. You have the infected coming towards the car. Um, so I do get a feeling that you wanted it all to look very, to have a feeling of the game. But what is different? Uh, ultimately, what is different to me is the fact that I always want to take things from the character's perspective. So an action sequence such as, as this one, normally you would have or shots that are like, oh, that's a really cool shot, and people go, that's a cool shot, and oh, that's really cool to see these things. But from my perspective, the way it has to be different is it has to come from the character's point of view. And if it's not from the character's point of view, if it's outside of the character's point of view, it has to show the threat to character. And that's a story point. So, for example, when you see the little spike strip, you understand that that's a character point of view. Or that's not character point of view, that's the, the threat to character. Mm -hmm. um, and every piece of uh, sort of more objective shots, I think they designed this in a really nice way as they were directing it. I was decoding it as the editor. I said, everything is at a really low angle. And what that tells me is that there's someone watching at all times. And there's this feeling of this omniscient threat 
uh, as they're going From through the city. And I wanted to lean into that. And so when you see the skulls of all of these people, I think he did like 60 takes of that, actually, um, of the, the skull shot, just to get the yeah. right amount of dust. Um, <laughs> and that was the moment where you go, okay, there's, there's something else afoot here. But as soon as we go uh, and see these, this character, you never go into that character's perspective. You always stay with the characters of Joel and specifically with Ellie, who's, as she says, I've never even been in a car until two days ago. So to feel her in this threatening situation in a car, uh, that was where I had to lean into everything. I had no idea what the game looked like at this point. I was just truly feeling it out through the characters and whether or not the shots were similar to the game was something that was beyond my control. My, my job as always is to manage how the audience is gonna feel things from the perspective of their characters. And the world building, you were telling me about insect, the noises, the sounds. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah, um, I actually had something, we call it the Insect Actors Guild. Um, <laughs> they're also on strike. They're also on strike. <laughs> and we had to, like, if there was an insect on screen and it didn't make a noise, I was like, we need, the, the guild has made a complaint. Uh, <laughs> we need to have the insect make a noise. Um, because, again, I wanted it to, to uh, Craig had this whole idea that you want to feel that a post-apocalyptic world is not, dire, it's actually returning to nature, and therefore nature has a more powerful presence when uh, the, the humanity of, of sort of the industrial world is gone. Um, so utilizing as much of the natural world as possible to create this contrast between what you're seeing in the world was what I think allowed the sort of this vibrant sort of soundscape, which, you know, Craig loves to process things through sound. Uh, we spend weeks on a sound mix when normally it would take three or four days. Mm -hmm. uh, but we wanted to make sure that the environment felt uh, completely uh, fully realized and, and it never felt like you were going to be in a situation <coughs> where you felt like you were being eh, sort of dragged along with like prelapse and whatnot. We very specifically designed hard cuts between the soundscapes so that you would feel the separation between mm -hmm. the sequences. And you don't think about that until you see this. Yeah. What would it sound like if we were in this situation? That's correct. So, so um, I imagine you spent hours. We spent so long, and I was lucky enough to have an assistant editor, uh, Emily Mendez, who became my co-editor during this because I actually needed a lot of help to finish as many episodes as I ended up doing. Um, and she would do all of this temporary sound work, and then she would work with Craig, and we would all discuss it as a group and say, have we gone too far now? Have we added too many things? Because a lot of what I love about sort of the idea of architecture is that you want to simplify as much mm -hmm. as you can because if there's something in the soundtrack or even in the picture that's not helping the story, it's not helping the environment, it's just sort of crowding the space, you want to remove those things. And you want to make sure that only the things that matter to the story and the character are still in there. So that's how we would design it. We would just sort of start adding and then start subtracting and seeing how, how we would end up. Right. Now, your first episode was actually Bill and Frank. And I just have to say what an amazing job you guys did on this episode, right? I mean, this was... Um, what was your first reaction to that script in particular? Well, the first reaction to that script was, what, uh, again, I, I, as an editor, and all, all editors, this is the, sort of the problem with editing, is we don't get to experience the, the film itself the way an audience does because we never get that first viewing that everyone else does. So in a weird way, when I watched it the first time, I'm like, okay, that works. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to do. 
but I never got the experience that everyone else did. But when I read the script, that's when I got that experience. And I felt this very rich world and these incredible characters that I really, really related to. I really understood these, these two men. I, uh, I, I, am, I call myself a Frank. <laughs> And my husband, who is here with me, I call him a Bill. So <laughs> he would disagree with me. Um, he says, no, I'm much more of a Frank than you think I am. <laughs> so, um, but I really understood this idea. And what, you know, what Craig had said is I, I feel like I want to see what love looks like between two people over time. And it's something I really related to. And I also understood that when you first meet as queer people in this, this world from 20 years ago, which was when I was experiencing uh, the, the similar things, is you have these uh, sort of coded messages you have to send out to each other to see if you're safe and to make sure that everything, that A, that you're figuring out about each other. You're sort of sussing each other out to see if the other is, is not, if they're interested, if they're not. And you find ways to be able to sort of completely dismiss any kind of, uh, interaction that would make, would re reveal who you are. Do you have an example of, of one of those coded messages that you? Oh, I mean, in, in the in the in episode. This, yeah, in the episode. Abs yeah, no. What, it, very specifically in the dining room sequence, the very first time, mm -hmm. when they're sort of uh, sort of trying to figure out what's going on, uh, Frank sends a little code to Bill saying, "I think I know that you know how to pair a Beaujolais with this exact rabbit." He says, I think, I think you are the kind of guy. And I wanted to hold on him specifically. So it's like saying, it's okay, you can reveal yourself. I'm saying you're okay. And Bill realizes that he might be caught at this moment, so he has to retreat. And then what happens is when he sits down, the little gun sort of rattles because he's now rattled. Frank recognizes this. And so every time he's, he says, okay, I've made him uncomfortable, I don't want to do that. Um, so from the, the emotional perspective of these two characters, it became a sort of a dance where each one of them had to sort of, you know, one was trying to get the other to reveal what he thought was true, and the other one was trying to hide what he had always buried deep down inside right. and didn't feel like he was worth love. And so I wanted to show how that character, who I related to very deeply, is like, I don't know if, you know, I deserve that love. Um, and so later on when they play the piano and, he's, and, and Frank says afterwards, um, who was the girl that you were singing about? That's the code. The code okay. is very clear, it's simple. He says, I'm giving you this out. Um, and holding on Bill, waiting to make that decision to say there was no girl versus him saying it right away. I didn't want him to say it right away, there is no girl because it's gonna be hard for him to say this and to hold on him before he says it and then to see the hand of Frank enter the frame and put it on his shoulder and say, I know, versus seeing Frank put his hand on his shoulder and then seeing the hand come in was really critical to making sure that I was showing how, these, how people in, 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 in the queer community, we will interact with each other and then make sure that we understand that we are in safe spaces. We're gonna look at a clip, but I wanna first ask you, because Craig, told me it was very important for him that the creative team on this episode was a gay creative team. So yeah. it was Peter Hoare, it was yourself, I mean, of course, Murray Bartlett. Mm -hmm. Was it helpful? It was incredibly helpful. Uh, and, you know, Peter Hoare is a director who just has an enormously gifted sense of uh, delicacy, uh, intimacy, nuance. Um, I loved his series, It's a Sin. Mm -hmm. um, that was, that so was just a, a, a monumental achievement, in, in my opinion. Um, and so for having him 
produce this the shots that are so simple. And that was the thing about this episode is that you would think there were just a, an abundance of, of choices, but what they did is they simplified it. And that's when I recognized, oh, you're doing exactly what I would do. You would simplify the, the filming because the characters were so strongly uh, drawn that you didn't want to complicate what was going on in the spaces. Mm -hmm. And that was how I sort of took my cue as to how to, to cut the sequences. I said, if I can not edit, that's my preference. If I can Just do the, everything it. as mm -hmm. long as I can without making the edit that will make the audience, it'll comfort the audience. Edits sometimes will do that. They say, okay, I don't have to live in this moment. You know, I, I can be released from this moment. I, and I said, well, how can I do this so I'm getting out of the way of the story that's being told? I want to basically background myself as, as the editor while at the same time foregrounding the nuance and the emotion between these two characters. On that note, let's take a look at the amazing scene from the other dinner sequence, um, Bill and Frank Purpose. This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you were my purpose. I can imagine being able to say you're satisfied at the end. Um, I'm just going to let you speak to this. It still makes us cry, right, this scene? Yeah, no, it's... Uh... And here we can see what you're talking about, how you stayed, you did not edit this like no, this. No, and, you know, it was. this was one of the hardest scenes to do for me. Um, it's just... Everyone is always thinking about what their life means, and you know to see also a gay couple have an ending that is joyful as opposed to an ending that is sad um, and I just feel like that moment where Murray and this was done in one one of the uh, takes where Murray Bartlett laughed and he chuckled and he, after they realized that they're going to die together, and it was just this it, it wasn't scripted it wasn't done on uh, uh, Nick's side of uh, coverage. And it was this beautiful moment where it's like, this was this, we have succeeded. We had the life that we wanted. Um, so I had to cheat. I had to pick a shot of Bill from another part of the scene where he was uh, chuckling at something else. Mm. Because I wanted to keep this moment and I didn't want it to be a singular moment. I wanted the moment to be shared. Um, and so I had to find a piece where he was chuckling from somewhere else. You can see it again if you want. You'll see his hands really not touching his hand. Um, <laughs> but I, again, as an editor, my job is not to worry about technical things and to worry about continuity as much as it is about to create the connection between these two people. And I, I see it always from the face of the characters, from how they look at each other, the truth between... Uh, uh, the, sort of their eyes um, and all the little tiny things that they can uh, show each other and I never think in terms of you know oh that I can't do that because there's a problem um, I say why can't I do it because it's the right thing to do emotionally um, so that sequence was and, and actually what was incredible about Nick Offerman in this sequence um, when he said and you were my purpose 
immediately after that, there was a big, loud um, light that fell over. Oh, wow. Um, and it went clang, and he did not flinch. Mm. And of course, I, of course, took it out, and I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. that's, the sound is gone now. Um, but it was one of those things where I was like, he is so into it that he, that he wouldn't even uh, notice it. And talk uh, about Nick Offerman, because that wasn't the casting that was from the beginning, right? Yeah. You had Murray Bartlett, mm -hmm. and then... Yeah, Nick Offerman was, uh, uh, came in because there was another actor who was uh, supposed to have the role, and he had a scheduling issue. Uh, and so Nick was brought in by Carolyn Strauss, I believe, who you may have heard about from the Somebody Somewhere panel. Um, we actually share an, an executive producer, the great Carolyn Strauss. Um, and, you know, the thing that makes uh, sort of um, uh, that casting so smart is because it goes against what you'd expect. Right. Um, you would not expect him to be uh, able to be this intimate, this vulnerable, uh, because you're so used to him as being the handyman, the guy who's the, the prepper, the guy who can fulfill the part of uh, the role that you would expect. And it was an amazing experience to watch him. And that little giggle he gives in the strawberries. Uh, originally, uh, some of the other people in the, the editing were like, are you going to keep that? I'm like, yeah. Because the giggle is what's the honest moment, and it's the thing you don't expect. So, because if you just took it out, you'd say, oh, that's what you'd always do. And the thing that I find so interesting is the things that make it unique and different. Um, so having him as that character and to see his transition um, from the sort of guy who refuses to let anyone in to building a life and, and having the, that love was, uh, for me, it was a monumental uh, thing yeah, to experience. You also use a little, have a little Norwegian touch in this episode. Tell me about that. What is the Norwegian? The music? Of course. Okay. <laughs> How this can is great. you forget this? <laughs> no, it's, uh, it was, oh my gosh. Yeah. So here's, here's what it was. Um, I had decided in a later sequence when they're having dinner and uh, Bill is feeding Frank soup. Um, and they had a little radio in the background and I, they said, well, maybe there's something on the radio. And so I said, well, I think it should be something piano-based because piano is where they uh, fell in love and that's what they would, they would really like. And because this was a time in their life where things weren't going well, I thought about um, a, a nocturne from Chopin. Um, I said, Chopin's nocturnes have this, 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 this elegance, this simplicity, this sadness to them that I think would be really great. So I happen to have a friend who's a Chopin expert uh, at a, a university in Los Angeles and I said, well, what can we do about this? And he said, well, here are three choices. And I picked one of them. And he goes, okay, well, you can do that one, but only if you get the recording by Leif uh, Ansnes. So, and so I said, okay, and I got it. And I believe he <laughs> is a Bergen resident. So, yeah. <laughs> and so that is the version that is in the show. This episode... You, it was quite emotional for you as well. Yeah. You went through a few things. So I'm yeah. very happy to share. Sure, yeah. yeah. No, it was um, because I was sort of dropped into this thing sort of very quickly. I was on my own in Calgary, um, and I had been told by A, Craig, and by almost everyone else, um, do not mess this up. This is everyone's favorite thing, and we really love it. And it was all on my shoulders. And so I'm by myself thinking about this day in, day out. The, the film that's coming in is so simple and so wonderfully elegant, and I'm just so used to people wanting me to do something maybe more flashy, more different, 
Um, and I just kept saying, no, I want to do this simple, but now I'm worried that this is not going to uh, be enough for, uh, for them, and it's going to be a failure, and I'm going to fail, and I can't fail the script because the script is too important for me personally and for them. Um, so I went through this period after 12 days where I was just working, 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 and I just got so uh, scared that I wasn't going to be able to perform, and I was also putting all of my my experience, my life experience into every scene, that I would, at night, I'd come home and I wouldn't be able to sort of relax. I would sort of sit there staring at the ceiling. And then I think 12 days into it, um, suddenly at midnight, I was awakened by my heart racing uh, super fast. And then all of a sudden, my entire body started to shake. And then I started to feel consciousness going away. And I'm like, well, clearly I'm having a heart attack because this is what it must be. Mm -hmm. And of course I'm having a heart attack because this is crazy. And so it's after midnight. I happen to be near uh, an urgent care right across the street. I head to the urgent care. I remember almost sort of dropping consciousness in the elevator. I head over to the urgent care. I walk up to the, uh, the, the person uh, and they said, oh, how, uh, you know, what can we do? Is this Canada? Um, how can we help you? Um, and I said, I'm, I'm dying. Um, can you please help me? I'm having a heart attack. And they saw me, they see my, my shakes, that everything and this and that. And I said, they said, okay, okay. Um, let's, let's have you sit down. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm having a heart attack here, guys. So this, you have to, you have to fix me. This lovely Canadian gentleman comes behind me with a stab wound. Um, and he's holding, you know, sort of his stab wound. And they say, would it be okay if we admit the man with the stab wound first? Um, and I said, but I am dying. And this person, it's just a flesh wound. So, and the, the lovely Canadian gentleman just says, please take care of him first. And so that's what ultimately happened. And over that course of that evening, uh, they, the doctors came and they said, have you been stressed out in your life at this point? And I said, yeah, maybe this was a panic attack. And I said, well, I've never had a panic attack before because this was a heart attack. And they're like, no, it was a panic attack. And so I had my very first panic attack making this episode. Well, thank you and for sharing. <clears throat> Switching gears, finally here. Um, Craig Mazin wrote like a mission statement, a philosophy of violence. Of course, when you're playing the game, kill, 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 I mean, that's... Fun. I mean, that's why you play. But it's yeah. kind of terrible storytelling if that's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about what he, what that philosophy of violence for the show was. Yeah, and it's what's. It, this is where the game and the, and the show have to diverge because in the game it's about the violence. It's about you as the protagonist doing violent things to survive. But as a series and as a passive viewer, seeing violence happen. And I have this aversion to violence myself. I have always been uh, raised by very pacifist. Uh, my parents were very peaceful. Uh, they, they, they hate everything to do with violence. And so I was trained early, you know, this is not what you want. And so Craig said, the violence in this show has to be based on how it affects the other characters and not about showing violence for violence's sake. We don't want to shock because of, and again, it's like, oh, that was so sick that, you know, this person did that. It wasn't about that. It was always about that was so moving because it was experienced by someone else. So in the fifth episode, when the character of Henry takes his own life, 
of course we had the option to show that. Mm -hmm. And instead, I, I just was like, no, I, I remember what Craig said. This is about showing how it affects the characters. And so every single element of violence in the series was always played from a character's perspective and never shown directly and never shown in a way that would make it feel sensational. Mm. I want to show a clip where you uh, actually do this as yeah. well. Um, can we show the next clip? Hands on your head! Really, man? Yep, the game is by the book. So what we're seeing here is actually a flashback mm -hmm. that sort of explains um, Joel's anger. Yeah. And this was your idea, right? Yeah, this was, a, this was something that came about when I was putting uh, a sequence together for Craig early on where we were showing the crew um, the amazing work they'd been doing to give them more motivation and to show them just that you know, a lot of times crews are working, they don't know what, how good it looks. Um, so I created this sort of four-minute piece to show them it. And, I was like going, look how you were able to take Joel from 20 years ago to today, how you were able to transform that character for the makeup department. And so I would edit back and forth between the character and I go, and then when I was editing the scene later, I said, you know, it makes all the sense in the world for us to understand why Joel would have this amount of rage towards this person and to, uh, and because it was filmed, and this was again, luck, it was filmed on the same axis, so they were both looking the same direction. I was able to figure out that, and also utilizing this idea of how it would feel to have all of this anger well up in you, there's this sort of specific sound that starts happening uh, to sort of allow you in to Joel's in interior life. All of a sudden, it made sense to show the reverse shot of him in the past, and w which was easier to do than going cut, cut, like a jump cut from Joel to Joel, I wanted it to be a gentle flashback. And it was only two shots, and there was no additional sound where you would add to it. I tried to make it as simple as possible, just to give the audience that understanding that this is now going to be charged from that feeling. And this is the, the moment where, after, after 20 years, he has waited to release the anger and the rage of having lost his own daughter. And pertaining to what we're talking about with the, how you do violence mm -hmm. on this show, that there's always a reason, yeah. there's always a perspective. There's always a perspective of why the violence happens. There's only one shot that we wanted to show the ferocity of what he was doing to the, the officer, but everything else came from how Ellie was perceiving the violence. And she said, oh, this is someone who I relate to, because Ellie also is a violent person, and she's seeing someone like her. And she's also recognizing in that moment that this is, if I need to be safe, this is the guy who can, say, who can keep me safe, because he can really fight. And in this world, there's only a few ways you can survive, and this is really one of them. Right, that's where they sort of find yeah. each other. The time is just flying by, and yeah. I, we wanted to make sure that if there's a couple of questions from yeah. the audience, we have about four minutes. Yeah. Um, and they said that there were some microphones. I can't really see you right here in the front. Let's see if we need a microphone coming for you here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing. And um, did you uh, have any uh, collaboration or talks with uh, Neil Druckmann? Uh, oh, the director yeah. of the game, yeah. Absolutely, you know, and, and the, the great part about Neil 
is he, is he trusts Craig so much. They have these very, what he calls high-level talks, high-level talks. So, and they have these collaborations where a lot of what is gonna happen is coming from one voice. And I remember when we were on <laughs> the Zoom after, for the notes for episode three, everyone had watched it. And Neil's like, so here are my notes, la, 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 da, 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 da. And Craig just goes, did you like it? <laughs> did you like it? And he goes, oh yeah, it's great. So, and, and, and that's the dichotomy between those two characters. So he's like, he's like, it's, it, he's like no, 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 trust me, it's amazing. Um, but, you know, and, and again, it's like, I just want to, like, make sure you understand this, this, and this. And so he has this uh, ability to give you these really surgical notes um, that really just, he's like, I loved everything up until this part. And Carolyn Strauss is the same way. Having those two people as sort of Craig's, uh, you know, devil on one shoulder, devil on the other, or I guess they're both devils. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they, they make sure that, you know, he has all of the, the surgical things to, to make sure that everything he's doing is at the top of its game. So having Neil come in at these late stages and just sort of, you know, make sure these little tweaks were happening was the best thing. Anyone else? There, right there in the middle? Got there first. Okay, okay first. Yeah. <laughs> first you and then you. <laughs> uh, could you talk a little bit about how the schedule was? Were you editing this the same day? When did you get the dailies? Oh yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing. I was, I was every day that they filmed, the very next day I would get all of those scenes. And therefore I had to, at, at the end of the, the, that day, I had to have all of those scenes uh, cut together uh, so that they could know if they had missed something. Um, so I'm constantly working almost alongside of the production and making sure that they're, they're, everything they're getting is, is, is the right thing. So usually about four days after they wrap production, I have the first cut of the episode uh -huh. ready to go. And for this uh, production, it was about a 20-day shoot for each episode, which was a, a very luxurious schedule, which I think they wanted because they wanted to make sure that they were able to take their time on all the scenes and not have to rush and figure out the best way of, of going about each one. Last question we had over here. Yeah. Uh, if you were to do the show again, uh, would you want to make it more similar to the video game, or do you think the way the show turned out worked out the way you wanted to? Good question. And the good news is I get to do it again <laughs> because there's going to be a second season, um, and I would not change a thing, and I'll tell you why, because I just feel like, the, it, the, and I'm hoping I'm right, but the characters and the relationships that were built and the trust and the, and the, and the you know, again, the things that weren't so great between the two characters um, that happened, that's where the beauty of these relationships are and the beauty of the show. The show lives with these characters. The show lives with the relationships. Um, and, and I can't imagine doing it so it would be uh, more similar to the game because otherwise I'm just repeating what the game's already done. And if you love the game, play the game. Yes, and as you were saying, there's going to be a season two, a bit yep. of a delay with the writer's strike, but yeah. we'll get there, and you'll be on it. And I just want to say that you were saying that your job is to get away, get out of the way of the performances and of the screenplay, but please don't, because you really enhance <laughs> it. <laughs> so thank you very much thank for taking you. your time with yeah. us and coming to Norway. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Please follow us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. 
In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.